I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you've got your Bibles there, uh, to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, continuing to work our way through. And John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, The twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Thank God again. For his word given to us, and we just pray that he'll give us understanding. Let's just come to him in prayer now. Father, we just want to thank you for your word in its many different forms, many different types of literature, and we recognize that as we come to these chapters in Revelation that a lot of the language and the imagery is unfamiliar to us, but we know that you're seeking to communicate truth to us today that impacts our lives. So, Lord, we pray. Give us understanding and give us the desire to live out your word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone said to me before I preached my last sermon on the the letter to the churches in in Revelation 3, that that's the easy stuff over now. The challenge really begins. That cheered me up. Uh, You see, the problem is, though, that apart from the, the challenges in the introduction to this book in Revelation, in chapter 1, and there are a few there, but apart from this, the problem actually is that that person was right. It's kind of like finally mastering one of those climbing walls you find in Glasgow and different cities around Britain. It's like mastering that at last. 
only to be told that your next challenge is to climb Annapurna, reckoned to be the most difficult mountain in the world to climb, with a fertility rate of 19.7%. I get that. Almost one in five of the expert mountaineers who set out to try to climb Annapurna lose their life in the process. So I just want to say, if your wife or any other friend that you have says to you someday, I see someone is organizing a trip to Annapurna, would you like to go? Then you know you've definitely done something wrong. You might not know what it is, but you've definitely done it. Now tonight, we're going to take our first step in this challenge as together we look at Revelation 4. And where I want to begin is by setting the scene. Now within this, we're, we're going to cover to remind ourselves of some of the, the relevant background details uh, in Revelation, and also a little bit about my general approach, the interpretation of Revelation, shared it before, but just to remind you, an approach that was, I believe, the position held by all the major teachers of the Reformation, and this being the view that, that I would continue to hold to. I want to remind you, though, of just what that is is about what it's based on. And hopefully as we do that, that will help you to kind of fit things together and hold things together and to see where we're going as we move through this book. And the setting, the situation is that the church in Asia Minor, now Turkey mainly, is about to come here under severe persecution, largely because of the, the impacts and the demands of emperor worship, worship of the Roman emperor. For you see, this region was the starting point and remained the center of the practice of worshiping the Roman emperor as God, as a divine being. With this having just been stepped up by the emperor at this time, Domitian, who was demanding that he be addressed and acknowledged by his subject as Lord and God. Now, now, John, in human terms, the, the author of Revelation, God's vehicle of inspiration, he knew that this was going to force the church into a corner. The loyal, faithful, right-thinking churches and Christians would not be able to give Caesar or to give any man this kind of position of supremacy, of authority in and over their lives. Now, the fact that this is the, the major problem facing the church of Revelation is, is made clear, I believe, throughout this book, but I, I love the subtle ways in which John at times chooses to underline this. For example, you are worthy was the phrase that customarily, customarily was used at this time to welcome the emperor as he arrived into any formal setting. You are worthy. And as we've said, the, the emperor Domitian demanded that he be addressed by his subjects as Lord and God. Well, how is this chapter closed off in verse 11? With these words of praise from the elders to their mighty God, verse 11 it says, You are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will 
they were created and have their being. You couldn't ask for it any louder or any clearer that the God who created the heavens and the earth by His will, by His almighty sovereign power, that He and He alone is the only one worthy of worship. Now, this position, the the only rightful position for a a faithful church, for a faithful Christian to take, was to bring the church into direct conflict with the society around them, with the worldly powers that surrounded them. And the Lord knew this. And He opened John's eyes to see this and to see also that this was a situation that would be exploited by the Jews. But you see, apparently at this time, um, the Roman authorities were inclined, had been up to this point, inclined to see Christianity as a, a sect, as a kind of subgroup of Judaism. And the Jews, well, they were well known in Rome and throughout the emperor, empire. And though disliked, they were tolerated, with them being given on payment of a tax a special exemption from pagan worship, including this worship of the emperor as God. But you see, John, inspired by the Lord, he knew that the Jews, that they would soon in this coming crisis, that they would take great pleasure in singling out the church, in singling Christians out, and making it clear, hey, they're nothing to do with us. I'm pointing out their disobedience, their spirit of rebellion in failing to worship Caesar as God. In addition, John knew that the churches he was writing to had been weakened by false teaching. He knew that. We've looked at something of the likely nature of this over recent weeks, so I'm not going to dwell on it now. Suffice it to say that in all likelihood, this included a diminished view of Christ and a degraded view of the importance of holiness in the Christian life. That is along the lines of that Jesus is a God rather than the unique Son of God, rather than God made flesh. With the possibility then being open to all of us if we just follow the rules and practices that have been laid out by these false teachers of our climbing up the ladder to a similar kind of God-like status. But in this, though, the focus is on the spirit. It is on the inner life. And that is that as long as you follow these correct, that is our spiritual practice, as long as you do this and climb up that ladder, then physically, what you do with your body, how you then live, doesn't matter. If you're spiritually right, spiritually mature, then in every other area of life, you can just live how you want, behave as you like. Now, you see, John knew that if the churches that he was writing to did not sort this out, he knew that spiritually weakened by this kind of teaching, that they would struggle to stand in the conflict that was to come. Now, now what struck me as I was thinking about this, is that we are now much closer to being in direct conflict with our society than at any other time, I believe, since Christianity first came to this land. Christian morality 
biblical morality, believing that there is such a thing as right and wrong, that it's not just a case of doing whatever makes you happy, and we all do that, and that's fine. This more and more is bringing us into conflict with our society. Having a traditional biblical moral view is more and more today seen as offensive and bigoted. How long will it be before this is viewed as a hate crime, as a criminal offence, if this is not in fact already the case? I just had a, a casual look around the internet and I came across the the story on the internet of a Christian school in Canada who were ordered to stop teaching the Bible, specifically those parts of the Bible deemed to be offensive and in violation of the Human Rights Act of the province of Alberta. And then Israel Falau, the Australian rugby international, he lost his contract, he lost his career, his livelihood, because he quoted 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, online, where we are told that, among others, homosexuals, fornicators, drunkards, thieves, liars, swindlers will not inherit the, the kingdom of God. Now, Israel Falau does translate not to inherit the kingdom of God as a direct equivalent to will go to hell, and that is, I have to say, a debatable point. And he is at times, Israel Falau, in the, time, in the things that he says, unnecessary, confrontational, and simplistic at points. But the facts are that he lost his job and faced a torrent of abuse. He was denied his right to free speech simply because he had the temerity to say, and this is what it was really all about, that homosexuality is sinful. The fact that he had this opinion was the problem, and he was denied the right to have that opinion. And then in this country, just this year, a Christian doctor lost his job after 36 years for saying that he would refuse to address a six-foot bearded man as madam. At a tribunal, the Department of Works and Pensions argued that his views are in breach of the 2010 Equality Act. The judge at this tribunal ruled that the biblical view of male and female violates human identity. You see, we too, like the churches of John's day, we are on course for a head-on conflict, a crash collision with the powers and authorities of this world. So we need to make sure that we are rooted and grounded in God, in His truth, if we're going to stand in the face of this. But you see, the temptation will be to compromise, to accommodate, to cut back so that we could fit in with the world around us. Many already are doing this, weakened by the false teaching that undermines the authority of the Bible, they are compromising and misinterpreting, twisting the clear teaching of God's Word to try and make it more palatable to wider society. But, you know, John's setting of the scene here doesn't only relate to the current situation facing the Christians then, or even to the contemporary situation that we face now. No, it also relates, I believe, 
to the ongoing situation. That is to the situation that God knows will be faced by his people repeatedly throughout history. For as I've said before, I I personally don't believe that revelation should be interpreted as a chronological guide to a sequence of events that must happen one after the other until finally we arrive at the second coming, the new Jerusalem to the end time as we know it. I don't, rather what I believe Revelation describes is the repeated, ongoing pattern of events that will occur time after time in history. A pattern of evil, tyranny, of persecution and chaos, but with Christ always still victorious in the midst. A pattern that's ongoing and building up to a climax at the second coming of Jesus. Now you see, it's this pattern that's unfolded for us here in Revelation from chapter 6 on. But here, in chapter 4 and 5, before this is unfolded, God gives us here, in Revelation 4 and 5, He gives us this vision. This vision to focus on, to hold on to, whatever this world might throw against us. And we're going to explore this vision now, first of all, by establishing the principle. Establishing the principle. That is the key principle that God wants His people to hold on to above all else throughout history. And it's there, I believe, in the first detail, the first thing that John sees as the door of heaven is thrown open before him. Verse 2 and 3, it says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne. And the one who sat on it had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald, encircled the throne. Now please, be clear that this throne isn't the first thing that John sees by chance. Nor is this just a detail that's there to add a a bit of extra color, I'm going to kill myself for this, to this already incredible scene. Not that. Though what God's saying here to the churches that this was originally written to, what He's saying here to His church down through the ages What God is saying is, I am on the throne. I am on the throne. This world might rage against you. You might suffer incredible pain and hardship. It might seem at times as if this world has won. It might seem as if evil has triumphed. But I am on the throne. I am sovereign. And in my sovereign power, I will use these things. I will work in these situations to reveal my glory and to bring you blessing now and ultimately at the end of time. You see, God wants His people to know as He lets evil off the leash to reveal its true and horrible ugliness, He wants His people to know that He still holds the leash.
He is in control. And He in His glory has triumphed, and He will see, be seen to be triumphant. And the fact that God here is described in terms of, of precious stones, the jasper, or semi-precious stones, the jasper, the carnelian, the emerald, that underlines the fact that such is His glory, first of all, that it is indescribable in human terms. cannot be described. The jasper is often seen as a, a symbol of holiness. With that aspect of holiness, surely enriched by the sea of glass that we're then told in verse 6, stands before the throne. The carnelian, that's usually a red stone, was generally seen in New Testament times as a symbol of wrath, a symbol of judgment. And of course, this ties in with holiness, in that man is separated from God in his holiness because of sin, which leaves us under his judgment. And interestingly, the next time we, the sea of glass is mentioned in, in Revelation is in Revelation 15 2, where there it's mixed with fire. Fire that in the Bible is a common symbol for judgment. Holiness then and judgment stand side by side. The emerald though, the emerald was typically seen to symbolize mercy. And as this is set here in conjunction with the rainbow, which from the days of Noah has always been a symbol of the mercy of God, then surely what this is designed to tell us is that though evil and man's sin through the ages horrifies and offends God and leaves mankind rightly and justly under His judgment, yet in the end, at the end, though there will be judgment for those persisting in their rebellion against God, yet ultimately, mercy will triumph. God's mercy will win the day. Love and mercy will be the experience of mankind throughout eternity. But this is the principle that God establishes at the outset of this vision, that He is sovereign, that He is in control. That no matter how things might seem in the moment, no matter how they might seem from our human perspective, that He is working His purposes out in history. And that ultimately, He will reveal His glory. He will judge sin, but above all and overwhelmingly, He will show mercy. Well, having set the scene, having established the principle, what we're going to close with now is simply by unpacking the vision. That is by looking at and trying to explain some of the characters and symbolism, different elements of, of this vision, trying to uncover their meaning and significance. So first, we have the 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones surrounding God's thrones. Now, there have been a number of different suggestions made about the identity of these elders, including seeing them as the fulfillment of the 24 orders of priests established in 1 Chronicles 24.5, or the 24 orders of Levites to serve the priests set up in 1 Chronicles 25.9 to 13. But you know, for me, the more obvious view, 
the more sensible view, which was also the most widely held view until some scholars decided to justify their existence by coming up with all these different alternatives, has always been that these 24 elders represent the 12 Old Testament patriarchs who were central to the foundation of Israel and the 12 New Testament apostles who founded the church. So you see, these 24 elders then, they represent God's people in totality, which surely, I think, ties in with the description of the New, the new Jerusalem that we find in Revelation 21, where there on its 12 gates, the names of the patriarchs are inscribed, and on its 12 foundations, the name of the 12 apostles. And then in addition, we have in addition to 24 elders, we have the four living creatures. Described here from verse 6 on, where it says, in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Now, let me say first that these four living creatures have things in common with, but are not identical to, the four living creatures that we find in Ezekiel's vision of God in Ezekiel chapter 1. And also, they get things in common with Isaiah's vision of the seraphim around the throne of God. In Isaiah 6. Now, I want to say the fact that these are not identical, for me, far from being a problem, actually underline the authenticity of John's vision. That is George Beasley Murray, as he puts it, John presents us here with a parabolic portrayal of the glory of God, not a photographic reproduction of heaven. But what are these four living creatures? What are they about? What do they symbolize? What are they saying to us? Well, they're obviously angelic beings who I believe together represent the entire living creation. All that is best in God's creation. This has been understood in terms of, the, of all the living beings that have been created by God, that the lion represents the noblest. The ox, the strongest, man, the wisest, and the eagle, the swiftest. Another way that this has been understood in early Jewish teaching, particularly, I suppose, in relation to Ezekiel's vision, is actually summed up in these words. It says there are four mighty creatures. The mightiest among the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among domestic animals is the ox. The mightiest among wild animals is the lion. The mightiest of them all is man. And God has taken all these and secured them to his throne. Then we are told that these four living creatures were covered with eyes all around them. Now surely what this symbolizes is their knowledge and their insight that they see and understand all that's going on and what it really means in contrast to sinful man who's blind to God 
and his activity. But it's not just the visual aspect that's significant here. There's also what is said and what is heard. For first, from the throne, from God, there are, verse 5, flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. These are reminders of the power and of the holiness of God and of His judgment that flows from that. And there are echoes here of the way that God made His presence known in Exodus 19 before He called Moses up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments and other instructions that came on from that. In the same way, there was thunder and lightning. And how is His people simultaneously committed adultery? They then came under the judgment of an awesome and holy God. But then we have the words that are constantly said by the four living creatures. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. A constant statement. A constant reminder of the holiness and the power and the glory of God. That He, the One who was and is and is to come, the God of eternity, that He rules over time and history. That it is not Caesar, nor is it any other dictator or human government, but it is God who is truly in control of our life and our destiny. Then notice what the response is of the 24 elders who represent the people of God, what their response is to this declaration. Verse 10 and 11, it says, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him, who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Their response is to declare that it's not Caesar who is Lord and God. It's not Caesar who is worthy of worship, worthy to receive glory and honor and power. It's not Caesar. No worldly powers or values should be allowed to usurp God's place in the life of His people. No, He alone, He alone, the living God, the Creator God, He is the one who holds us, holds our lives and our world in His hands. And He alone is worthy of worship. Verse 11, you are worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, there are other things that we could cover here, like the seven lamps that were blazing before the throne, which I believe points symbolically towards the Holy Spirit, but we'll leave that for now, as I believe that fits in better with what we're going to look at later in Revelation 5. But do you see, though, what God's saying here to His people through this vision? 
as they're about to enter a time of intense suffering and persecution, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, focus on me. When the world seems to be against you, when your world seems to be falling apart all around you, when you cannot understand what's happening and you can see no way out, then focus on me. Remember who your God is, that He is the Almighty, the God of glory and power, the God of total holiness and infinite love, the God who is sovereign and who holds your life and this world in His hands, the God of victory, who has won the victory and who will finish His work in your life and in this world who will make you more and more like Jesus and who will take you to be with him. Don't let this world and its powers dominate you and crush you because their powers are limited and are only for this life at the very best. Remember who your God is. Catch a vision of who your God is. This was God's word to his people who were struggling in that first century world. And this continues to be his word to his people who face the same kind of troubles today. This is God's word. Remember who your God is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, and is to come. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that, that you're the God who knows what lies before your people, and that you're the God who prepares your people for the hardest and toughest times in life. You don't pretend that life's going to be easy. You don't pretend that we're not going to face any challenges in this fallen and sinful world because we will. We will. But what you say is that you will be with us, that you will bless us, that you will glorify yourself when you call us to remember you, to fix our eyes on you, to hold on to you, that you might carry us through. Lord, may we be ready to do that tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.